Good morning. Good morning. Let's all stand up. And we're going to start off this uh, service with the I Saw the Light medley. Thank <laughs> you. 
Ushers, please. nice to laugh in the house of the Lord. Brother Randy, would you take us to the Lord of Prayer? Let's all stand up again, please. We're going to start off this part of the service with majesty, and then we're going to sing at the cross, the blood ran red.
may be seated.
Well, good morning. Let me tell you, we are so blessed to have such talented people here around the Avenue. Amen? <laughs> I got tickled this morning. Brother Mark led us in that towel in the blood, and I got tickled with the folks around me. They were amazed that I could keep up with all four of those. Pow, 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 pow. I was like, I am the motor mouth. Amen? That's why God made me a preacher, you know? I got tickled with that. That was fun, and I enjoyed every minute of that. Well, if you have your Bibles with you, open with me, please, to the book of Nehemiah. The book of Nehemiah. And we're going to have a little bit of fun this morning and a very powerful sermon. seems a little dramatically, so uh, bear with me a little bit and worship with me. So before we begin, let's open up with that word of prayer. Father, we come to you in Jesus' name. We want to thank you, Lord, for the opportunity to be in your house this morning. And this is my prayer, Father God, that there be anybody who needs to come to know your personal Lord and Savior, and anybody, Father, who needs to get their heart right with you, their walk right with you, anybody who needs to be a part of Robinson Avenue Baptist Church to do that today, do that day. We give you the praise, honor, and glory, even now, in Jesus' holy name. Amen. Title of this morning's sermon is, Nehemiah, Do to Make a Difference. Turn with me, please, to Nehemiah chapter 1. Nehemiah chapter 1. Before we read the scripture, I want to give you a little background of what has happened here. Nehemiah is living his life in a captivity. Captivity. Uh, the captivity is coming to an end. And a few years before this happens here, Ezra has left with the great leave of the king and went back and rebuilt the temple in Jerusalem. Nehemiah is in Shushan. He's actually living in the Babylonian area, the Persian area. And he's the cup server to the king. He is the butler, the personal butler to the king. That means he is responsible for cooking the king's meals. He's responsible for serving the king. He's responsible for ensuring that the food is safe to make sure nobody slips anything into the king's cup. So we find ourselves beginning church in a very responsible man. He's not a priest. He's not a prophet. He's just a regular guy. And he is going to make a difference. Let's take a look at Nehemiah chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. The Bible says, The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah, it came to pass in the month of Kislev, in the twentieth year, as I was in Shushan, the citadel, that Hanani, one of my brethren, came with me from Judah. And I asked him concerning the Jews who had escaped, who had survived the captivity, and concerning Jerusalem. And they said to me, The survivors who are left from captivity in the province are there in great stress and reproach. The wall of Jerusalem is also broken down, and its gates are burned with fire. So it was, when I heard these words, that I sat down and wept and mourned for many days. I was fasting and praying for the God of heaven. Well, I want to do an experiment with you this morning. Here at Robertson Avenue, I've been blessed with a lot of folks who love to say amen. Can you say amen with me this morning? I, I like the amen, but today we're going to limit that amen to just three proposals. Amen? <laughs> just three of them. And I know as a Baptist, when you feel a good amen coming on, if you don't let it out, it could be hurtful to somebody, you know? But just try to get three of them in today. See if you can control yourself a little bit like that. And put yourself in Nehemiah's shoes. Uh, the walls were broken down, and that's where Nehemiah picks up at. Those walls were broken. Now, those walls are something very important to Jerusalem at this time because during this time frame, every city had to have walls around it. One, for protection. Two, for 
a status quo. If you didn't have the walls around you, then anybody could walk in, anybody could invade you, anybody could overcome your defenses. And at this time, the walls of Jerusalem were broken down. The temple was up and running. Jewish people were living there, but they were surrounded by enemies. Sounds just like today, does not But the walls were broken down, and that was a scary time for them. When uh, Nehemiah's kinfolk, and it could very well be his brother, shows up and he asks about how the Jews are in Jerusalem, he says, well, things are going okay, but the walls are broken down. And it's like somebody just punched Nehemiah right in the face. The Bible tells us he stepped down, cried, and he prayed. When the walls are broken down, it's a reproach to any people at that time. Why? Because what they were saying is you cannot defend yourself. You cannot be completely safe. Now, we're going to use a little allegory this morning. And we're going to put that over in the Christian life. Perhaps you're one of those this morning. And you've been coming to church. You've been going to church. And you're going to church. In fact, you've been going all over to all kinds of churches. And you haven't heard the message yet. That your walls are broken down. That you have been sitting there standing around, looking around, saying, God, I need some help. God, I need someone to be there. I need a Nehemiah in my life because my walls are broken down. And at any moment, the world could come flooding in. At any moment, the enemy, the devil, could come in. How many of you know that when walls are broken down, it's time to rebuild? Amen? That's one right there. Right? Remember, you only got three. How many of you know to rebuild them? <laughs> it's harder than the original. It's always harder to rebuild than it is to just plain build. That's why today a lot of construction companies will completely remove a building and start from fresh, start from scratch, because it's easier sometimes, most of the time, to build than it is to rebuild. Let me give some examples of that. Can you rebuild a truck that you break? Hard, isn't it? But it was a lot easier to have that truck in the first place. Perhaps you've been out there rebuilding a business. Perhaps you're right now trying to rebuild a marriage. It's hard. It's hard to rebuild a family. Most of us have seen what COVID-19 did to the church. And we saw the fear in the believer's eyes. And we saw them, and it was like they were crying out, saying, we have no walls around us. One moment, everything is going great. And the next moment, crash! The walls come tumbling down. Nehemiah asked his kinfolk, How are the Jews in Jerusalem? And they said, The walls are down. It's time to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. Now, God used ordinary people. And Nehemiah wasn't a prophet. He wasn't a priest. He wasn't even a religious leader. He was a regular guy working a very responsible job. He was fortunate to have been chosen for that kind of job. But before that, to be honest with you, those that grew up in his place, in his stead, those that worked his job before him, were chosen and worked there on the point of dying if they didn't. Nehemiah was at a time place and a 
time frame where he had some power with the king, where he had some ability to talk to the king. In fact, he was right there at the right hand of the king, and he was responsible to taste everything the king ate. God uses ordinary people in tough times. So let's take a look at some synonyms for Nehemiah, if you will. When I think of, of Nehemiah, some other words come to mind. He's a visionary. So I think of vision. He's also got conviction. So I think of conviction. He's also got compassion. He's got commitment. And he's got devotion. Guys like Nehemiah inspire me. When I look for guys like Nehemiah, I'm reminded of the story of General Westmoreland in Vietnam. The Vietnam War. You might think about this. General Westmoreland actually went and interviewed his paratrooper. And he went up to the first one one day and he said, Son, do you like jumping out of the airplanes? And he said, Yes, sir. It's the greatest thrill of my life. He went up to the second one and he said, Son, do you enjoy jumping out of the airplanes? He said, Sir, yes, sir. There's nothing like it. He went up to the third young man. Son, do you enjoy jumping out of the airplane? The young parachute looked up at his general and he said, Sir, I hate it. And the general said, Well, why are you doing this? He said, Sir, I love being around people who love to jump. Nehemiah was one of those leaders that could inspire people who didn't want to work to work. He inspired people to realize that the walls were down. And it's my job this morning, it's my hope this morning, it's my prayer this morning that you might realize there's some walls down in your Christianity. Do you have some gates that are burnt down? Do you have some walls that are down? Are you crying out right now, God, I need a Nehemiah because Satan goes around like a roaring lion seeking who be made devour, and I ain't got no wall. The church Nehemiah loves Number one, if you'll look with me in Nehemiah chapter 1, and just look at verse 2. Here, that Hananiah, one of my brethren, came with me from Judah, and I asked him concerning the Jews who had escaped, who had survived the captivity concerning Jerusalem. He found out what the problem was. He exposed it. Nehemiah exposed it. You know how he did that? He asked pointed questions. And that's the first thing we're going to learn this morning when you realize the walls are down and how you can make a difference in a situation like that. Then you've got to learn to expose the problem. I don't know about you, but deep down inside, that's the last thing I want to do with problems in my life. I want to keep them hidden. You've got to say amen now. That's two, right? That's two. So when you expose the problem, it becomes general knowledge. Nehemiah exposed the problem by asking pointed questions. Notice that the question he asked his brethren is, how are the Jews? How are they surviving? What's going on concerning them? It was pointed questions. He wanted to make a difference, and that's how he started there, by exposing the problem. You know the answer Hananiah gives. He gives the answer that the walls are down. The gates are burned. We are reproached to the people around us. Now, inside those broken walls, the temple was still operating as though there was nothing wrong. And a lot of us do that in our Christian lives. The walls are broken down. The world is moving in and out of our lives. Sin is coming in and out of us. But we think we've still got the temple up and running like it's normal, don't we? 
the temple was still operating as though there was nothing wrong. The walls were broken down, and the people outside were laughing at Jerusalem. You know, that's what happens when a Christian decides to let the walls down, and the enemy come in, and let sin come in. You know what happens? The world looks at them and says, well, there's a lot more than just a hypocrite, isn't it? It's a, what are you doing? And you're acting like the temple is still running perfectly. What's happening here in Nehemiah's heart? In fact, the people outside will be feeling like I can walk right over your broken walls and remove you at any time. The people in Nehemiah's time, that's why Jerusalem was a reproach when the walls were down, because they were saying, we can walk right over your broken walls. We can step right over top of them and remove you at any moment, at any time, we so choose. So that brings the question that you might ask. You might have been praying, and you might have been fasting, and you might say, does my fasting make a difference? In fact, the world is asking that when a Christian's walls are broken down. They say to the Christian, does your fasting make a difference? Do your prayers help? Can God make a difference? And here's the problem. Remember, we've got to be closing. You are mixing and mingling with the world because you let the walls and perhaps in your Christian walk today, you've let those walls down. You've let King Nebuchadnezzar and all the others break down and burn down the walls of your Christianity. And you are afraid to rebuild it. Oh, the temple's up and running. And the world is moving in and out of your life. It's true then. You are mixing and mingling with the world. Now, Nehemiah, when he realized those walls that means it him like a parking spot. It's like a ton of bricks. I thought that was funny when they came and he said, let's get quick, quick and rebuild the walls. Well, I did. So look with me in verse 4. So it was when I heard these words that I sat down and wept and mourned for many days. I was fasting and praying before the God of heaven. Now, we just getting started, so hold on. How many of you know how many of you know what the Bible says about that? Now, I'm a modern-day Christian. I got saved in the year 1994. That's not a long time ago. Some of y'all are looking, Josh, you're older than I thought. That's true. I'm older than I look. You know why I look so young? Because I'm married to Betsy. Amen? She keeps me young looking like that. Now, she does. And she, sometimes she makes me look old, too, you know. But that's, just, that's a different story. Not for today. So, but Nehemiah, church, Nehemiah sat down and prayed, the Bible tells us, for many days. He prayed, he fasted, and he seeked God. In fact, the Bible says he seeked after the God of heaven. When's the last time we've truly done that? See, our idea of prayer now is a two or three second word. God, help me. That's a fervent prayer, isn't it? God, you know what I'm going through, and I expect you to take care of this. And that's what we think is sin. That's what we ended up. Nehemiah was different. The Bible says he sat down. It was like the wind got knocked out of him. He couldn't understand what was going on. He sat down, and he was like, Lord, this is in your hands. Lord, I need to seek you. What do you want me to do? Because the walls are down. 
you're going to be in Nehemiah this morning, you got to start making a difference. And if you're going to start making a difference, then you got to start asking those pointed questions and understand and reveal and expose what the problem is. Nehemiah, the Bible tells us, prayed for many days. How many of you know James 5 and verse 16, the very end of that verse says, the effective, fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. And you see Nehemiah putting that into practice right there. You see him praying for many days. Now, if you're a timeline Bible guy, then you'll know that this is about four months of prayer. I don't know about you, but about four minutes is about all we can stand nowadays. We can't even stand more than one hour in church. He prayed and fasted and seeked after God for four months because the walls were down. I want to remind you that the effective, fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. Effective. That word means active, operative, and powerful. And let me share with you what those things are. To have an effective Prayer life means that it's operative. That means it's something you do all the time on a regular basis. Amen or oh me. It's something you do all the time. It's something that's set in your life. It's not something that comes on because something bad happens. It's not something that you want to do because you want to see God do a miracle. Unfortunately, most Christians today start praying when something bad happens and stop praying when it goes good. Not Nehemiah. The Bible says he had that prayer life. He seeked after God for four months. And the Bible tells us the effective fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. It was effective. It was active. That was something that was going on in his life from day one. From the moment he was big enough and old enough to understand there's a God in heaven and we aren't it. Amen? When he understood that, the prayer life began. And he began to cry out and to talk to God, his Father. It was active and it was operative. What does operative mean? If it's active, that means it's going on in his life actively. What does operative mean? Operative means he puts it to work at every time something comes up. It was operative. In fact, he used it to bring about operations in his life. Let me give you an example of that. How many times have you spent how much time have you spent praying for revival? Most of us have, haven't we? God, send the great revival. We've got songs about it. Send the great revival to my soul. Y'all remember that song? We sing about it. We pray about it. But how much revival is really happening? Do you know why it's not happening? Because we don't have an operative prayer life. Operative means that not only are we actively involved in it, but we're operating. Operating means we actually obey. Somebody say amen. If you want revival, you've got to obey. When you start praying for real, you'll find out that God is going to put shoes on your prayers and send you out, Nehemiah, to rebuild some walls. The effective, operative, fervent prayer of Nehemiah sent him back to Jerusalem to rebuild some walls. It's effective, it's active, and it's operative, and it's also powerful. That's the last part of that one right there. It's powerful. What is a powerful prayer life? You know, and I used to think a powerful prayer life was, are you ready for this? Well, when I was young, and I just went off to Bible school, and I remember they put my phone number in the phone book, in the white pages. That's how old I am. No idea. They put my name in there, Brownwood, right? They put it in there. They put it Reverend Joshua T. Morrison. And I used to get phone calls all the time from weirdos saying, I've got a ghost in my house, Reverend. Can you come perform an exorcism? I said, 
no. And I thought, man, I've got some sort of powerful faith. Wrong. You want to know what powerful faith, powerful prayer life is? Powerful prayer life means that you turn to prayer when you've got nothing else. Somebody say amen. we got that four right there. Sorry, guys. When you have effective prayer, it's active, it's operative, and it's powerful. And powerful prayer means that you know Him who you are talking to. You know Him. You know His voice. And He knows yours. The Bible tells us the effective, fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. I want you to pick your spiritual shoes up this morning. Are you ready? God does business with people who mean business. We think that God created us to enjoy life. I want you to know that we're supposed to employ our lives to Jesus Christ. We're supposed to have effective, fervent prayer. You know, some people ask me to this day, Pastor, what is fasting and how do I fast? You know what I usually answer it with? Was, have you ever missed a meal because you were praying? Baptists say no all the time. If you haven't missed a prayer because you haven't missed a meal because you're praying, then you have no idea what fasting's all about. In fact, it's beyond your comprehension until you realize there's nothing more important than being with your Father in heaven. Not one thing. But you can make a difference. All around us there's Christians today and their walls are broken out. They got a temple in their heart. The Bible tells us, know you not, that ye are the temple of the Lord, the Holy Spirit. You can make a difference. You need to, one, expose the problem by asking those pointed questions. And two, we need to assume our responsibility. We need to assume it. That doesn't mean we need to sit back and say, well, it's your fault that this is happening. It's your fault that the walls are broken down. It's your fault that the world is mixing into the church. No, no, no. We need to assume our responsibility. That means we identify with the problem and we come to understand that the people are our Personally, I would say the people are my people. We sin, and we take responsibility. So how do we respond to our responsibility? When I was a young Christian, I would respond with anger. But I've learned we don't need to respond with anger, but we need to respond with anger. The difference between anger and angry is a broken broken heart. What is a broken heart before God? A broken heart is a contrite heart. It's a repentant heart. It's a heart that longs for fellowship with God the Father. It longs to know Him and the power of His resurrection. It longs to be with Him. It has no other desire. How many of you know that when you actually get in the presence of God Almighty, nothing else satisfies? Because our walls are Nothing separating us from the world. Have you looked at the statistics today? Pastors are falling apart. Church congregations are falling apart. Christians are getting involved in drugs and alcoholism and pornography. Marriage is no longer sacred. Now it's just another byword. Well, I got remarried today. Church, our walls are falling down and there's nothing separating us from the world. Look with me in verse 4 of Nehemiah chapter 1. So it was when I heard these words that I sat down and wept and mourned for many days. I was fasting and praying before the God of heaven. I believe that we as a church collectively have forgotten how to weep. 
When you see a Christian leader fall, how many of us respond with anger? No, we should be responding with anguish. It should break our hearts. But the walls have come tumbling down. We don't need to point our fingers. We need to get on our knees. It was easier for Nehemiah to stay put where he was. I mean, he had a dream job, didn't he? He had it made in the shade. He lived in a palace. He had luxury all around him. And all he had to do was attend to the king's every need. And he was there. He was there. He saw all the action. He saw and witnessed every decision. One day, he actively, operatively prayed to God. And he had a powerful prayer. When he stepped down and seeked after God in heaven, he realized how to make a difference. And I'm telling you this morning, you make a difference. You need to identify the problem. You need to assume your responsibility. I'm telling you, we need to seek the God of heaven. Look at me in verse 4 here. At the end of it, it says, I was fasting and praying before the God of heaven. How did Nehemiah seek God? Well, he prayed, obviously. He prayed. So how do you seek God? Number one, he begins with prayer. Prayer is a lot more than just you talking. It is learning to listen. Because God has got a lot to say. He mourned. Nehemiah mourned. He mourned. That means he repented over what was happening. He mourned. He cried over it. It broke his heart. And I think deep down inside the church has lost the ability have a broken heart. And we won't get it back until we seek God. And perhaps you've been sitting there saying, that doesn't bother me anymore. I'm cold. I'm hard. I'm callous to it. Well, it's time to get back on your knees and let God take that heart of stone out of you and put a heart of flesh in you. One that's full of the Holy Ghost. Nehemiah prayed. Nehemiah mourned when he found out the walls were down. And the Bible tells us he wept. Over it. When's the last time you cried over sin? When's the last time you cried? You know, most of us, when we sin, we say, oh well. Oh well. Now, I want to talk a little bit more about that in detail. So, switch over with me to Nehemiah chapter 2. It should be one verse. The Bible tells us in verse 1 And it came to pass in the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was before him, that I took the wine and gave it to the king. Remember, he's a cupbearer. Now, I had never been sad in his presence before. And you know the rest of the story. He's going to ask Nehemiah, why are you sad? Because I'm telling you, if he came in looking like a Christian who had been eating a bunch of persimmons, then King Artaxerxes would have said, I need a new cupbearer. He had to come in with a smile on his face all the time. Church, this time Nehemiah came in sad because his heart was broken. And when he came in with a broken heart, when he was weeping, the king said, why are you sad? And I love Nehemiah. He tells the answer. The walls are broken down. My people are defensive. We're a reproach. We're a laughing stock to the world. The world is mingling in with us. We're dancing with the devil. I want to go back and build the walls. You know what? If you read the rest of the story, just to, just to throw this in perspective, the king says, yeah, you can go back. How long will it take you? 
And Nehemiah already has an answer for him. How many of you know that if you will truly spend time in prayer, you're going to find out God will give you all of the answers? You better believe it, he will be. There he was. He gives him the answers. He's got all his ducks in a row. He takes off everything he needs, even letters from the king, and goes to Jerusalem and runs into all kinds of opposition, all kinds of problems, all kinds of enemies and people he didn't even know about. In fact, if you read the whole book of Nehemiah, you're going to find out he has to build the walls of Jerusalem with a sword in one hand while picking up and putting bricks in with the other hand. And you might be thinking right now, Pastor Joshua, that's my life. I've been building a wall my entire life. I've been picking up bricks. i got the sword of God in my right hand. Well, you know what? Do what Nehemiah did. Keep on working. Amen. Don't ever give up. While you're at it, don't forget that Nehemiah was a cutler. He was a butler. That means he brought cups for the king. Could you imagine what the king would have thought if Nehemiah brought dirty cups? Could you imagine what the king would have thought if Nehemiah brought a cup that was unfit for the king? Now, if you come to my house, and by the way, you're welcome, you're going to find that Betsy and I have the finest china in all of Papa John. It consists of, of, uh, of bluebell cups and uh, country kitchen uh, Tupperware pots. You know, we've got great stuff. Even those little raisin canes cups. We keep them. That's fine china. One day, Betsy's brother-in-law came and ate dinner with us. And we had a Kentucky Fried Chicken, you know, the reusable bowl that they, they send out. And we served him a serving in that Kentucky Fried Chicken bowl. And he was like, you want me to throw this away? And I was like, no. We need that thing. <laughs> he just looked at me like, what's wrong with you? And I was like, I'm building a wall, pal, all right? <laughs> oh, my goodness. You could you imagine if he brought the king those kinds of cups? What if he brought that little reusable raisin cane cup? What if he brought to him a dirty cup? Now, that thought in mind, I want you to turn with me, please, to 2 Timothy chapter 2. 2 Timothy chapter 2. Also, if you were to come to my house, and incidentally, you are most welcome you're going to find that my kitchen is decorated with chickens. I don't really know why that happened. I mean, I said I like chickens, and then one day, out of a sudden, everyone started bringing chickens. It was chicken, chicken pups that I liked, and Betsy and I bought some, and now everybody still buys chicken things for my kitchen, and that's okay. But there's lots of chicken things in, the, in my kitchen. And uh, you would think that they would have actually asked Betsy, but they didn't. They asked me. I don't understand that, but they did. And so we had decorated the kitchen in chicken roosters, really. To the point where uh, my pianist at the last church I pastored, she came out to visit us and she commented on the chickens and roosters. And a couple of days later, she brought us a couple of rooster cups and said, Please add these to your collection. And I was thinking, I have no more room. I've got all those fine raisin cane cups, you know. <laughs> we have lots of chickens in my kitchen. And we're going to change that here soon. Um, perhaps uh, one of these days. Betsy says, build the wall first, then we'll paint the kitchen. Amen. All right. 2 Timothy chapter 2. Look with me in verses 19 through 21. The Bible says, Nevertheless, the solid foundation of God stands, having this seal. The Lord knows those who are His. And let everyone who names the name of Christ depart from iniquity. That's sin, y'all. Iniquity is sin. In fact, it's actually a deeper word than that. It means lawlessness. 
if you can commit lawlessness, if you can commit immorality, then you don't know Christ. The Bible says, let everyone who names the name of Christ depart from lawlessness. Look with me in verse 20. But in a great house there are not only vessels of gold and silver, but also wood and clay, some for honor and some for dishonor. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from the latter, he will be a vessel for honor, sanctified and useful for the master, prepared for every good work. Now, let's talk about that. So I said before, if you were to come to my house, most of our cups are plastic. Most of them are old. The glass ones we have, we have chips on them. There's nothing to be proud of in there. But there are some that are very special to us. And I want to tell you about one. It is an amazing cup to me. It's just a measuring cup, a glass measuring cup. And it's so old that the little red lines that tell you one cup, half a cup, three quarters cup, are gone. And why do I keep that cup? I'm going to tell you why I keep that cup. It is a cup of honor to me. Because when my eldest son started growing up, he fell in love with a superhero named Spider-Man. You might know who Spider-Man is. I got some badges for you talking about comics. I know. So he fell in love with Spider-Man. He was about four, four and a half years old. And I went to the Dollar Tree and I found a Spider-Man cup for him. It fit right in with the rest of our plastic cups. So I did. And so I had that dollar and I bought him that cup and he loved that cup. Well, Dad ran it through the dishwasher and you know what happened. There was almost Spider-Man on it. And my son cried his eyes out. And I could not come up with an alternative for him. I had no dollar. I had nothing. And so I reached up in the cabinet and I pulled out that glass measuring cup that had those red lines. I said, this is Dad's special Spider-Man cup. And I gave it to my son. He drank out of that cup for two years. The one who said, that's not a Spider-Man cup. <laughs> but I will never forget that. To him, it was special. And because it was special to him, it was special to me. It's something that I honor in my house. And it's still in a cabinet to this day. And when I miss him, I go to the cabinet and I pick out I pick it up and I look at it and I remember the precious gift Father God gave me and my son. However, there's other cups that aren't for honor. There's cups that have been taken into the bathtub to rinse. Okay. I had four sons. There's cups that went outside and dug holes or got mud in them, or had been used to get a sick dog food. Well, like this, there's no amen or bad stuff. You know what I'm talking about. There's some to honor, some to dishonor. And I want to talk about those honorable cups first. Now, you might think those honorable cups are the ones up in the china cabinet, you know, the crystal, the fine china, the beautiful ones. That's not the one God's talking about. God's talking about those special cups that you can take outside and drop and it won't break. God's talking about those special kind of cups that don't fight back when the kids are destroying them, that no one cares about. He's talking about those kind of cups. The Apostle Paul's talking about that kind of cup. You know what I call those cups? Missionaries. Those kind of cups can take it. Somebody say amen. That's five, y'all. Those kind of cups can take it. They can take it. They listen and keep on 
Those kind of cups are there. And they bring water out in the field where the harvester is, where the workman is, where those that are crying out, God, I'm dying of thirst. Well, up comes this plastic beat up cup and says, I have inside of me the water of life. You can throw me on the ground. You can abuse me. But I'm going to get back up, get refilled, and bring the water of life to somebody else. That's an honorable cup. Somebody say amen. What about those other cups? The ones in the house you bring out, you know, or just the company comes. You say, Josh, what kind of cups do you have? I want to talk about it. The kind of cups I have in my house I bring out with a company cup. You already heard, you're getting the fine raisin cane cup. Amen? That's what I cup. And some of us have wonderful cups that we bring them out when the company comes. And they're beautiful and they're nice to look. Oh, and they bring them out of reverence. That's what's holy. That's just. That's pure. It's beautiful. What a work of art the Master did there. Those cups are fine creatures. Those cups are wonderful evangelists. Those cups are Christian leaders that we model our lives. And they're beautiful. But when they break, when they fall, what happens to them? They shatter in a million pieces. Because they're not made to go out in the fields. They're not made to leave the china cabinet very long. Let's talk about some other cups, though. Let's talk about the cup no one wants to talk about. You know, the one that's still in the sink at home waiting for somebody to do the dishes. What if you took yourself to the best restaurant in Central Texas? You know, I gotta put any restaurant names out there for fear that someone will think you're no. Let's say you go to the best restaurant you can find in Central Texas. And as you sat down, you are served by a wonderful waitress who is extremely polite and extremely attentive to all of your needs. As you're sitting down, she pulls the chair out for you. She places a napkin in your lap. She unfolds and unrolls your fork, your knife, your spoon, and everything is laid out in perfect order. And you order the finest cuisine they have. And they bring it to you. Lay it down in front of the table. And on that plate, Dried up rice in somebody else's cup. Then you look at the cup that's set in front of you, and there's a lipstick ring on it. You look down at the fork you just thought was beautiful, and in the tines of that fork is a cigarette. And then your spoon is wrapped around it, and that's your head. Then you look at the food itself, and inside the food is trash. Actual trash. What would you do with that food? What would you do with those plates and those cups? You would refuse to eat them. Can I ask you a question? You are coffee master. If you were to be taken right now by Jesus to be put out in the field to give those workers, to be put into the china cabinet to give to those people who are going to be evangelists, Would you be something fit for the master to serve the water of life to him? Or would you be the cup that they would desire? Let's read again in verse 21 of 2 Timothy chapter 2. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from the latter, he will be a vessel for honor, sanctified and useful for the master, to 
compared to every good work. If you were to evaluate yourself, would you have something practicing behind the gift box? Would you have silk on the rim of your cap? Would you have yesterday's bill still on your cap? Or would you be sick and useful for the Lord? And so Joshua looked at that he was building walls. Well, Nehemiah was a carpenter. Can you imagine what would have happened if he brought a dirty cup to that king? Can you imagine what would happen if he brought trash to that king? That's an earthly king. What are we bringing to the king? What are we serving him? We're about to have a word of prayer. Jesus spoke to you this morning about how your plate presents, how your cup represents, or what's on your fork to spoon your knife. You know what you are, and you know what you've been cutting, what you've been eating, whether or not you've been bought. Perhaps you say, Brother Josh, I'm not a Christian. What do I look like? Let me tell you what you look like if not a Christian. The Bible says you look dead in your sin. And you need to be made alive. How do you do that? Through the blood of Jesus Christ. And faith in Him. Would you be willing to come this morning and ask Jesus into your heart? Accept Him as Lord and Savior. And by faith, be born again. Now, perhaps one of those say, Pastor Joshua, I need a church family. I need someone who's going to pray with me, pray for me, encourage me. I'm going to tell you right now, there is no better church than Robertson Avenue. Amen? Chapter 7. <laughs> there is none better than Robertson Avenue. You come and be a part of that church. Perhaps you say, Pastor, I walk with the God. Preacher, my life isn't right. I don't need to talk to you. I need to talk to God. That's what your pastor says. Would you come and do business with God today? Remember, God does business for those who mean business. But perhaps one of those this morning is Pastor Justin. My walls are down. And the enemy is gathering all around. What do I do? Be a Nehemiah and keep on working. Don't you dare give up. Don't you dare stop. You've got a job to do. And you're putting a wall between the devil and your family. You're putting a wall between the devil and you. And God is right there next to you. In fact, he's the one handing you the brick. Keep walking. Keep walking. We're going to have that word of prayer. If he spoke to you this morning, would you come? Would you surrender to what God is doing? Father, we come to now in Jesus' name. And I want to thank you, Lord God, for your word. It is quick. And it is powerful. It is sharper than any two-edged sword. And I pray right now, Lord, your word will cut down into our hearts, Lord. Convict us that there be anyone that needs to come to know you. Would you give them the strength and courage to come? Could there be anyone that needs to repent and get their walk right with you? Would you let Kay be that day? And could there be any, Lord, that need to become a part of Robert's family? Would you let Kay be that day? We give you the praise, honor, and glory, even now, in Jesus' name. Would you come with your sins? Turn your eyes on Jesus. Come on. Oh.
God bless you all. I want to thank you for joining in with us. Worship here at Rock Family Baptist Church. But just because the music ended doesn't mean God has stopped working. He was sitting there in that pew, and I felt this morning. He was saying, I need Jesus, but I was afraid to come. Grab me on the way up to Grab somebody and say, I need Jesus. Well, with that being said, don't forget tonight, we're having a worship service at 6 o'clock. Come and be a part of that. You don't want to miss that sermon. Amen? Amen. At 8. <laughs> All right. And don't forget Wednesday night at 6.30, Bible study. Come and be a part of those things. And do we have any last-minute prayer requests, questions, or comments for today? Wednesday at 11 o'clock, prayer time. Come and be a part of that. Anything else? Yes, ma'am. Yes, ma'am. You bet we'll pray for Michael. We surely will. We'll pray for Sister Angela as well. Yes, ma'am. Yes, ma'am.